Chapter Twenty Seven of Rebellion by Joseph M. Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. And oh, of all tortures, that torture the worst, the terrible, terrible torture of thirst, for the naphthaline river of passion accursed. Poe. Jim was a dipsomaniac, not a villain. His vice made no one else so abysmally wretched as it made himself. After each spree he descended into the deep hell of remorse. He thought of pistols, razors, and the lake. Would not every one he cared for be the better for his disappearance? Was it not decenter to die than to live on, a reeking beast, a stenchful sewer for whiskey? Then, as his long-enduring body began once more patiently to expel the poison he had thrust into it, he slowly cheered up. He wouldn't kill himself. He would swear off for ever and ever. So help him God. Amen. In a few days he was completely reassured, and not a little proud of his evident self-control. He bragged of it casually. He was pharisaical. He pitied drinking men. No! he would say, raising a deprecating hand when invited to smile with them. I've cut it out for good. I don't like it, and, laughing, it don't like me. I've had enough in my day to keep up my batting average for the rest of my life, and enough is sufficiency. A little ginger ale for mine, thank you. And the best of it was that the whiskey didn't seem to tempt him any more. It was almost too easy, this being good. Nothing to it, if a fellow simply made up his mind. Old Colonel E. E. Morse had certainly stampeded him the other morning when he was getting over his headache. He smiled a trifle wryly. Yes, he'd actually gone so far as to contemplate suicide, which was a great sin, to avoid getting full, which was a less one. And now here he was, never feeling better in his life and not touching a drop. The old colonel certainly did make a goat of a fellow. He had acted more like a boy than a grown-up man. The blood-curdling oaths he'd taken with eyes and hands raised to heaven by his mother's soul and his hope of meeting her again. The memory of his hysterical state somewhat embarrassed him. Some drank and some didn't, just as some had blue eyes and some brown. Bismarck and Grant, for instance, drank. It was foolish, on the face of it, to suppose that those giants among men were in the habit of lying awake nights, agonizing over the question of a glass of beer or two with their evening meal. That wouldn't show they were strong, but weak. At this point he dropped from his vocabulary the word drunk, with its essentially ugly sound, and substituted loaded, which is pleasanter, then jagged, which is pleasanter still especially if one humorously places the accent on the final ed. A further alteration in his barroom terminology made it stewed, soused, plastered, anointed, all lit up, sprung, ossified. When a periodical gets around again to the point of calling intoxication by pet names, his spifflication is not very far ahead of him. In gradually divesting itself of the hideous and demonic character which he was wont to ascribe to it, in the first moments of his passionate remorse after a debauch, alcohol achieved the necessary preliminary work preparatory to his next one. 
The curious thing was that he always realized in the heat of a new resolution precisely how the next attack would presently begin against him. "'Never again,' he would say to himself, "'never again, Jim Connor, if you're worth the powder to blow you to hell. Never again, understand!' Never mind about George Washington and Grover Cleveland. You quit. Don't you care if the doctors say it's a food. It isn't a food for you. Leave it alone or die. It's been your steady enemy since you got into long pants. Hate it. But in spite of efforts that were sometimes gallant, he could not keep his hate hot. The further he got from his last spree, the less horrible and more amusing it seemed in retrospection. The furiously emotional character of his resolution gradually cooled off and lost its driving power. Only near the end of a period of abstinence did alcohol make a direct assault upon his body, and even then in skilful disguise. His digestion went back on him. He would conscientiously seek to fend off his misery by pills, powders, salts, extracts, soda and charcoal tablets, pepsin gum by giving up smoking, coffee, dessert, by hot water before meals, and brisk walks. But he adopted these measures dispiritedly. A still small voice had begun to whisper that they wouldn't do, and that only one thing would. If that one thing were taken privately just before supper, say downtown where the crowd wasn't around to kid him for seeming backsliding and if it were immediately followed by half a teaspoon of ground coffee from the receptacle made and provided for such contingencies georgia would be neither the worse nor the wiser and he would get his appetite back mind said the small voice just one why of course he quickly agreed with himself just one that was all he needed he didn't want the stuff for its own sake. He got no pleasure out of it. In fact, he rather disliked the taste of it. But purely and simply for medicine, as a last resort. Hadn't he already tried every other damn thing on the market? Usually he escaped detection the first day or two, and went to bed at night triumphant and respectable, his secret locked successfully in his breast, excitedly convinced that at last he had learned to drink like a gentleman. Presently he sensed the need of a more exact definition. How many drinks did a gentleman take a day? Two or three, or even more on special occasions? Was getting wet or cold a special occasion? What was a drink, anyway? Two fingers, three, or a whiskey glassful? How much beer equaled how much spirits? Wasn't liquor mixed with seltzer less harmful to the lining of the stomach than the same amount taken straight? It ought to be, for a highball, according to test, averaged no more alcohol than the light wines of France and Italy, and, as was well known, a drunken man was seldom seen over there. This being indisputable, might not one increase one's prescribed allowance of whiskey if one diluted it conscientiously? He never tired of these and similar questions. They fascinated him and centred his consciousness. His mind revolved around the whiskey proposition like a satellite around its principle. He might hate, loathe, abominate whiskey, or poo-poo it, or compromise with it, or succumb to it. But he thought of it most of the time, endlessly readjusting his relations with it, like an old man in the power of a harlot.
Sometimes he would admit that there was much to be said against the cumulative effect of a drink every day. Twenty-four hours was hardly long enough to get wholly rid of the last one before you put the next one in on top of it. Would it not, possibly, be more advantageous to one's system, for instance, to get a slight skate on Saturday night, nothing serious, a mere jolly, harmless bun, and cut it out altogether for the rest of the week, than to go against it daily? This suggestion usually presented itself early on Saturday evening, after he had got a good start. After a little argument pro and con, the pros won. The pros always won without exception, yet Jim never once neglected to go through the form of argument. It was astonishing with what perfect regularity he repeated time after time the same mental sequence in his circlings around whiskey. He did not necessarily lose his job at each spree. He was not the explosive type of drunkard. He managed sometimes to drag himself wearily through the motions of work in the daytime, slipping out every hour or two, on some excuse, to baby it along. But from night to night his drunkenness would deepen until at last, with his nerves shattered and money gone, he stumbled home to his womenfolk to be nursed, to threaten suicide, while they telephoned lies to his employer to take his solemn pledge and to begin his cycle over again. Four times during his wife's second pregnancy he made the complete circle. She put up with his lapses more humbly than ever before in their married life. Each time that he renewed his pledge her sustaining hope returned that he would keep it this time, until at least the baby was born and she was well enough to return to work. Then she wouldn't be afraid any more. Disencumbered, her strength restored, she would be wholly able to take care of herself and her child. She could earn two livings. She knew precisely how to go about it. There was nothing haphazard in her plans. Either she would promptly find another first-class secretarial position, or else she would go into business on her own hook, get a small room about eight feet by eight, at one-fifty or one-seventy-five a square foot, in a big office building, and put on the door, G. Connor, stenographer, court reporter, notary public. She could see it in her mind's eye. It looked fine. But it was several months off yet, slow months of discomfort, culminating in hours of the acutest agony a human being can suffer and live. She knew she had been through it once already. But she would never go through it again, after this time, never. They might say what they liked about race suicide, this was the last for her. In the meantime she must keep Jim as straight as possible and get all she could out of him, for presently there would be some heavy bills to pay. She kissed and flattered him, and went through his pockets at night, racing the bartenders for his money. Wasn't a businesswoman a big fool, she often asked herself, to get in this fix for a man she didn't love? The church. The church took a pretty theoretical view of some things. End of chapter 27